Good morning. It is a joy to be able to worship with you and to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. For those who are visiting or have not been here the last few weeks, we've been spending time in the Psalms this summer, which was the songbook of Israel. These are the prayers and songs that Israel ran to time and time again in all of life's circumstances. What do I do right after I've been caught in sin? What do I do when it seems like God isn't paying any attention? What do I do when I look up at the night sky and see the immensity of the universe? What do I do when the world around me seems to be unraveling? All of those things are addressed in the Psalms. And the Psalms don't give us a how-to book. Instead, they give us the words to say. They give us language for the state of our hearts. And they shape us more and more into the followers of Christ that we were always intended to be. This week, we're going to look at Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you open them to Psalm 73? And this psalm addresses a situation of despair. Here's the question that the psalmist is asking himself, and the question that I believe God wants us to wrestle with today. What do I do when faithfulness seems pointless? What do I do when the wicked, those who aren't following God, get all the good stuff? And it seems like I have nothing to show for my obedience. That's the question that this psalm is addressing. Some of you are going to feel one side of that equation more than the other. You notice all the time people who care nothing about God but are prospering. They seem to be winning at life. Your coworker or a competing business has no integrity. They cheat and they misrepresent and they lie and they're doing great. The bad girls at school, the ones who everyone knows are doing awful things, they're the ones who are getting all the attention from the boys. You say to yourself, I know that parent doesn't disciple their kids. They don't take them to church. They don't discipline them. And their kids look like they belong on the cover of a magazine with their perfect little life. God, why are these people who are doing the wrong things getting everything good? And then there's the other side of the equation that some of you feel even more. You have been faithful to God. You've done the right things. and You feel like you have nothing to show for it. You've kept yourself sexually pure. You've resisted the temptation that all of your friends are giving into, and you can't buy a girlfriend. Or maybe you did that, and you got married, and you believed the promise that that would make marriage a breeze and perfectly fulfilling, and it's turned out not to be that way. Maybe your kids are grown and you look back at your time of parenting and you say, I know I wasn't perfect. I know that I messed up sometimes, but I tried so hard 
and I was faithful to God and raised my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And now they are so far from God. What was the point? Was all of it in vain? This is the situation of Asaph, the psalmist today. He is in despair. The wicked are prospering, and his faithfulness seems to have no reward from God. How many of you have been in that place? How many of you are in that place today? Our God has something to say to you. But before we hear His words, let us ask for His help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, we ask that You would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see Your Son, Jesus Christ, in all His glory. Give us humility as we hear the glorious Gospel that we might long for You more than anything else. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. 
You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we look at this psalm today, we're going to see the progression of thought that takes place for Asaph. First, we're going to see the mindset of despair that takes over for him in verses 2 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, we'll see the turning point in the psalm where his mindset begins to shift. And then finally, we'll see what this clearer vision shows him and how it changes his mindset even though it doesn't change his circumstances. We'll see that in verses 18 through 28. So that's where we're going With this psalm, the first thing we're going to see is how this mindset of despair settles in for Asaph. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He opens with this declaration of God's faithfulness, God's goodness to those who are faithful. It's straightforward and sounds very pious and right. But it's followed with that all-important qualifier. But. He says, I know that God is good to the pure in heart, but. And before we get to the but, you need to know that pure in heart doesn't mean perfect. The psalmist has no illusion that he has followed God's law perfectly. Every Israelite knew that they had sinned against God. The pure in heart, the righteous, the faithful, the godly, these terms that show up again and again in the Psalms, these are the people who sin but repent. They trust God to forgive their sins and they pursue right living after God. So Asaph isn't claiming that God is good to the perfect, but that He is good to those who trust in Him and repent of their sin. Now for the but. He says, but, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Something happened to his trust in God. Something caused him to waver in his belief that God is good to those who love Him. What was it? Well, he tells us in verses 3 through 12. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches." The thing that was causing the psalmist to stumble, that was causing his trust in God's goodness to falter, 
and ultimately that was leading him to this mindset of despair was that he was looking around and he was seeing the prosperity of the wicked. He sees these people and he knows that they are not living in repentance. They aren't following God and they're doing great. He mentions three things. They've got a lot of money, their health is great, and they have no troubles. Verse 12 is a summary statement. He says, behold, look, these are the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in riches. Everything good is happening to them, and nothing bad is happening to them. And you may think, well, that's an exaggeration. He's not seeing all the hard stuff that is probably in their life. No one is actually like that. And you're probably right, but that's not really the point. The point is that the little bit of their life that he does see has created a certain mindset in him. It's a mindset that only sees all the good stuff that they have and none of the bad stuff. And if you wonder if we have this temptation in our modern world, the answer is probably in your purse or in your pocket right now. You open up your Instagram, you open up your Facebook, and you see those people. Look at her with her perfect little life and her perfectly decorated house and brand new furniture and her perfect body and her sweet little kids and her thoughtful husband. Look at him with his nice new truck and all the hunting trips he goes on and his pretty wife waiting for him at home. Look at them all having fun and going to parties I'm not invited to and their parents giving them whatever they want. We see these snapshots of people's lives, and we see all the good things that they have. And in the psalm, after talking about all these blessings, all these good things that they have, he talks about how ungodly they are. And this isn't hidden ungodliness. This isn't hidden sin. It's out in the open. Maybe it's side by side with their posts about their perfect life. They flaunt it for the world to see. And while the text does mention violence and threatening oppression, it seems to primarily focus on them throwing their ungodliness in God's face. Verse 6 says that pride is their necklace. Again, it's something out in the open that they're displaying for everyone to see. Verse 9 says they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 11 sums it up. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so the picture that we get is someone prospering, someone living the good life in our eyes, someone who seems to be showered in blessings, and they are living ungodly, wicked lives. They aren't pursuing righteousness, and their response to their sin isn't humility and repentance. Instead, it's mockery of the very idea of God, pretending that he can't see their actions and he can't do anything about it. And when the psalmist sees these people, he does what we do. He begins to compare. He compares their lives to his own life. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He contrasts his own life with their prosperity. Remember, they are comfortable and rich. He says about himself, All the day long I have been stricken, and I am rebuked every morning. And then notice the key move that he makes. This is so important for his mindset and for understanding our own mindsets in these circumstances. Verse 13 is a cry of despair. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This is pointless, he says. Why in the world am I doing all this work to fight sin and obey God and keep myself pure? I have nothing to show for it. This has all been a big waste of time. Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? Wondering what good it is to follow God if He doesn't really reward you. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that what we are reading right now is Scripture. This is a song written for the people of God to sing in corporate worship. You're not weird if you felt this way as a Christian. You're not a bad Christian if you have been frustrated when things don't seem to go the way that you thought they should. The emotions of the Psalms are the normal emotions of the Christian life. Do you understand that? You were meant to wrestle through the difficulties of life, not pretend that they don't exist. But notice, that's not the end of this psalm. Some psalms end in wrestling. But in this one, we are shown the way through. We don't know how long Asaph sat in this despair, wrestled through his difficulty. But he shows us what brought him out. He shows us the turning point in his perspective. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. He says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says that he wrestled with this, and when he thought about trying to figure all of this out, it seemed to him a wearisome task, exhausting. Until, until what? What was the turning point for him? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What do people do in the sanctuary, in the temple? They worship. Who are they with? The people of God. He's talking about corporate worship. The turning point for him is walking into church on a Sunday morning. Why? How did that, how did this change his despair? To understand Asaph's turning point, I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine, stay with me, that there is a huge box around the world, surrounding the world. It's blocking us off from anything outside of the natural world. And we don't know if anything exists outside of this box, but it really doesn't matter. 
In this scenario, we can understand everything about life just with what is inside the box. The meaning of life, happiness, the origins of the world, where we are all going, all of this can be explained without having to think or consider anything outside this box. This idea is what Christian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. The word imminent means to be contained within something. The imminent frame is the idea that everything in the world is part of a natural order that we can understand without reference to anything outside of it. It's a naturalistic worldview. All meaning is contained within what we can see and touch and hear and smell. This is the assumption of most people in our modern world, Taylor says. No one really minds if you believe in God or believe in transcendent realities, but you better be able to explain life and your decisions and meaning without reference to God or eternity or anything like that. That's the imminent frame, and that's the world that you and I are living in. All meaning is contained inside this box. And I think this is key to understanding Asaph's despair and why coming into corporate worship popped the bubble of his despair. Asaph, in his despair, was only looking at this world. He had his eyes locked in on what was right in front of him. But when we come into corporate worship, when we come before God's throne of grace, we cannot reduce life to the imminent frame. In a sense, our worship opens up the lid of this box containing our world. We say this every week, that we're worshiping with the angels and archangels in heaven. Hebrews 12 tells us that our worship, in our worship, we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to God the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who was and is and is to come. When we come into worship, we blow the top off of this box of the imminent frame. We come face to face with the transcendent, with God Himself, the God of the whole universe. So what happens when we see that? If this is the turning point for Asaph, what changed when he worshipped God? When the top was blown off of this self-contained world? The result for him and for us is that our vision gets cleared up. We see two things. We see the outcome of the wicked, and we see the joy of the godly. Look at verse 17 with me on down through verse 20 to see the outcome of the wicked. He says, then, at this moment, I discerned their end. Truly, you set them, this is the wicked, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In worship, Asaph gets a picture of eternity. He sees that this life is not the end of of the story. They're happy and comfortable now. 
but the wicked will not be that way for eternity. Brothers and sisters, the sad, hard truth is that for all of eternity, the wicked will not be comfortable and at ease, but they will be in torment in hell. This is not a joyful doctrine that we enjoy talking about, but it is the truth. And if we are going to be faithful to God's Word, we will talk about it. Those who persist in pride and sin and refuse to repent and come to Jesus, not just those outside this room, but those inside this room, will spend endless days in the misery of hell. That is the outcome that Asaph was reminded of. Sin does not result in blessing. It results in destruction. And it almost seems like Asaph is going to give us the other side of that coin. He's now going to move to the godly. And we expect that he's going to talk about the joy of the godly. And he does. He does talk about the joy of the godly. But we think maybe the wicked don't have riches and comfort for all of eternity, but I do. My faithfulness is going to result in plenty of good things for all of eternity. I didn't get it now, but I will get it then. Things are hard now, but I'm going to have a mansion up over that hilltop if I stay faithful. But that's not what he says. When he gives the other side of the outcome of the wicked, he does talk about the joy of the godly. But it's not focused on the next life, and it's not focused on riches. Remember, he was in despair because of the material wealth and all the things that he saw the wicked have. He despaired that God wasn't giving him those things as a reward for his faithfulness. Now he's had a reorienting in worship, but the reorienting isn't just about timing. He has been reoriented in his understanding of what God promises to the faithful. What is it that we long for? What is the reward of the godly? Look at what he says, starting in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Brothers and sisters, the reward of the godly is God. What do we get for our faithfulness? We get God. We get the fellowship and communion and companionship of the God of the universe. God is our reward. The good news of the gospel is not that we get stuff. It's that we get Him. Whom have I in heaven but you? The assumed answer is no one. In comparison with God, we have nothing else that matters to us. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is Asaph's answer to the question we opened with. 
What do I do when faithfulness seems pointless? And it seems like I have nothing to show for my obedience. His answer is to look past what is right in front of you. To look past the fact that we don't have a bigger bank account or a cute boyfriend or obedient kids or a peaceful marriage. Those things are not the ultimate longing of our hearts and they will not provide lasting joy. Only union with the God of the universe can do that. When we come in here, when we come into corporate worship, we see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. We see His love and compassion that He has shown us in sending Jesus. We see the patience and forgiveness Jesus has for us in our sins and the shocking joy He had in paying for them. We see the strength and power He has in His resurrection over death. We see the care and patience that the Holy Spirit has for us as we grow in Him. And we are reminded that our salvation is union with that God. The good news of the Gospel is that we get God. So if you are living in sin and refuse to repent, remember, there is one reward, one joy, one blessing that you will never have if you don't repent. God. He reserves Himself only for the humble. And if you are struggling in faithfulness, wondering if there is any point to your faithfulness and your obedience. Remember, there is one blessing, one joy, one reward that will never be taken from the godly, no matter what comes. It's God. He will never leave you, and He will never forsake you. This is the knife that cuts through our despair. This is the joy that outshines all our sorrows. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you all pray with me? Father, we come to you with feeble hearts, knowing the truth that our longing is for you ultimately, but knowing that we are drawn to so many other things. Lord, we pray that you would reorient our hearts toward You. That we would long for You above and over everything else in this world. And that we would have joy and stability that can only be found in You. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.